So I know Thanksgiving has passed, but we're not done giving thanks. If you have not yet seen some of the videos of just some stories of folks from Columbus who have shared why they're thankful, then please go to the Columbus website, uh, cabcwaco.org, and you can see uh, some other stories just like uh, Jose's, and uh, we're grateful that he'd be willing to uh, share that. If you have a story of how God has uh, used this church to, uh, to bring good into your life, if you'd be willing to share how you're thankful, then you can also uh, post that there on that webpage uh, so that others can uh, could hear how God has used this church to, uh, to bless you. Uh, it is a gift for us to uh, gather together today. We're going to uh, today wrap up a series that we began back in February. I know that seems like 20 years ago, but back in February, we began going through 1 Corinthians, and today we come to the end of that, uh, that series. We're going to read together a few verses from 1 Corinthians chapter 16. You'll find them on your, uh, on your notes that are printed there. Uh, you can also uh, turn to your Bibles and look there. But let's read together from God's Word as we begin today. Be alert. Stand firm in the faith. Act like a man. Be strong. Your every action must be done with love. This greeting is in my own hand, Paul. If anyone does not love the Lord, a curse be on him. Maranatha, that is, Lord, come. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with you. My love be with all of you in Christ Jesus. Thank you. This is the word of the Lord. So as we come to the end of this letter, we're hearing the Apostle Paul writing to this church in Corinth, and he ends with a particularly punchy conclusion. And now, oftentimes, uh, you might end a message, or I might end a message with uh, sincerely, or uh, I'll see you later, or something like that. Uh, Paul adds a much more substance to the end of his letter. In fact, some scholars have have read this, and one in particular says that this, these few verses, they serve as what he calls a hermeneutical spotlight for the whole rest of the letter. What that means is that as Paul wraps up his letter, he's going to shine a light on a particular theme that really points to his driving concern that he's been getting at through the entire letter. And so it's a pretty important conclusion moment for the study of 1 Corinthians, but it's also important for us today, and here's why. It's, it's not enough for us just to sort of be interested historically in what the Apostle Paul was writing to uh, these Christians in Corinth. That's, that's an interesting subject, but it really isn't enough for us to get uh, all of our attention focused on. But what we confess and what we believe is that this is not just about what Paul wrote to the Corinthians, but rather God is speaking to us today through what Paul said to the Corinthians, which means that if we're going to look at Paul's central concern, we're also going to be hearing God's central concern for his church, that is, us, you and me, who want to live a life shaped by Jesus. We ought to have our antennas up and our, our attention focused to hear what is it that's being spotlighted right here at the end of this letter in 1 Corinthians chapter 16. We're going to look at this in two parts. The, the first part, the, the indication of this spotlight, 
actually begins in verses 13 and 14, the first two verses that we read. And then we're going to see the apostle flesh it out in that last section, 21 through 24. So look back with me at verse 13 and 14, because I want you to see the spotlight, see what it is that he's focusing on as he drives to his central concern. So verse 13 and 14 again. Be alert, stand firm in the faith, act like a man, be strong. Your every action must be done in love. Now, if you've studied some of the other letters of Paul in the New Testament, you'll know that it's a pretty typical pattern for him when he comes to the end of his letters to, well, do something like this, where he he lays side by side in short succession a series of commands or imperatives. And so this is no exception. He, he lays out some commands. Be alert, stand firm, act like a man, be strong, do everything in love. It's, it's very characteristic of Paul to compile all these together and just sort of thrust them at you at the end. But what he's doing in this is he's laying out commands that are not supposed to be done just once, the, the tense, the Greek tense of which these verbs are in, suggests that these are commands that are supposed to be done in an ongoing kind of a way. We are to keep on being alert, to keep on standing firm, to keep on acting like a man, to keep on being strong, to keep on doing everything in love. That's typical for Paul. He'll use that kind of a command at the end. What's not typical for Paul... What stands out in 1 Corinthians 13 is actually that last line, do everything in love. He's going to repeat that word love as you get down into the verses that we'll read in a second, and he ends this by saying, my love be with all of you. That's not normal for the Apostle Paul when he's writing, and that's what tips us off that he is spotlighting something that we must pay attention to. What is his central concern? And what is God's central concern for his church? Well, it's love. And it's not just any kind of a love. Those series of commands that Paul uses, it, it serves to set the stage for the kind of love that he's talking about. Now, it might seem odd for you for him to say, in my translation, act like a man. Some of you, that's easier than others because you, well, are men. Um, And so this can be a point of of confusion and maybe uh, some consternation, but let's be clear about what he's saying and what he's not saying. Now, when he says, act like a man, he's not just making a contrast between man and woman. And the reason we know that is because Paul has used this kind of expression several times throughout 1 Corinthians. There's right, right right to distinguish between man and woman. That's a legitimate and biblical distinction, but that's not what he's driving at here. What he's driving at is to say, we are to act like a man in contrast not to woman, but rather in contrast to children. Throughout his letter... He has been calling this church to grow up. And so when he comes to the conclusion and he says, act like a man, what he is saying is, 
please, for the love of Jesus, act like grown-ups. Don't act like a child anymore. And when he says, be strong, he's not just speaking of masculine strength. That's typically how it strikes us in our ears. He's contrasting the strength of a grown adult with that of a child. When he says, be alert, he's saying, don't be like a little kid that sort of plays with the toy on the floor and is completely oblivious to everything else that's going on. An adult is able to step back and see a bigger picture. He calls the church to do everything in love, but a particular kind of love, a mature love, a grown-up love. And all throughout his letter, he has been teaching them and calling them and correcting them and rebuking them, and all of it has been about, hey, guys, Let's grow up and exhibit mature love. And then as he comes to the end, he describes one more time in a powerfully personal kind of a way what mature love is, what it's like. And that's what we see starting in verse 21. It's, uh, it goes this way. He says, this greeting is in my own hand. Now, it might seem strange to you as we read in a printed text to see something like that. But remember, in, this, in its historical context, there were no computers, uh, there were no typewriters, there was no books. This predates all of that. And so for Paul to send this letter, he doesn't pull out his phone and start dictating a text. No, he has to hire someone, a scribe or an amanuensis is the technical term for it, who comes and, and Paul then will speak or dictate the letter that this professional writer will then write down. And the reason why he would hire a professional is because the, the tools, the instruments of writing were incredibly expensive back in that day. Uh, the, the paper or papyrus that they would write on, the ink and the writing instruments, all of that was very expensive. And so if you were going to write a substantial letter or a message, you would want to make sure that someone who could write neatly and tiny would be the one doing the writing so that you can get the most possible words onto the, the page as possible. It was the cheapest, most economical way to do it. And so when Paul comes here to the end and he says, this greeting is in my own hand, what we're supposed to be remembering is that when this letter was delivered to the Corinthians, somebody got up like this and read this letter to Paul, from Paul. And when they get to this point, the one reading recognizes that the handwriting has changed. Instead of the professional writer you have Paul, who was a professional himself, a professional orator or speech giver. He was, he was a trained guy, but not trained to write like this. And so in other places, he will say, see what large letters I write with. His handwriting apparently wasn't very good. And so what we see Paul doing here at the very end is demonstrating a kind of act of humble love. He's going to call them to mature love, and even in how he expresses it, 
He is humbling himself to write in his own hands up against that of the professional and write in his own hand a very personal and passionate appeal for them to live up to this mature love. So what does Paul say in his own hand? How is it that he communicates what mature love looks like? Well, he does it in at least three ways, and that's what we're going to spend the rest of our time looking at this morning. Verse 22, this is the first thing that he writes with his own hand. He writes this, if anyone does not love the Lord, a curse be on him, maranatha, that is, Lord, come. Now, what's that got to do with love? Well, good for you. You don't have to answer. I'll tell you, all right? This first aspect of love, mature love that he's pointing to, is to say that mature love is a faithful love. And here's how we know that. When when Paul says here, if anyone does not love the Lord, a curse be on him, he's using some pretty harsh language, but it would not have been something that was entirely unfamiliar to those whom Paul had already taught and instructed. They would have heard Paul teach about the original relationship that God had set up with his people, his people Israel. They would have heard Paul talk about the Shema, which was an important text in Deuteronomy chapter 6, where God would speak to the people and say, Here is, here's my relationship with you. I'm promising to do these things for you if you will promise to do these things in response. God was setting up a covenant relationship with him. And so in Deuteronomy chapter 6, we read what every Jew would have known by heart and been able to say on the, with the drop of a hat. They would have been able to say, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And then they would go on to say what that kind of a, a relationship with God would require. They would say, You shall love. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your strength. See, the most fundamental aspect of the relationship between God and his people was that God would show faithful love to the people. And the people were in response supposed to love him with a faithful, dedicated kind of love in response. So when Paul says, look, if someone doesn't love the Lord, a curse be on him. He's pointing to the reality that the way the scripture sets this thing up, how people relate to God, is that there's really only two sides of the coin to be on. You can either be in his love or you can be under his wrath. You see, most folks, most modern folks like you and me, we like to think that there's three categories. There's those people who are in God's love, and they're religious, and they're sort of spiritual, and they're into all of that. And then there's those folks over here who are under his wrath, who, who just rebel and don't care and do whatever they want, and they, uh, they hate Christians and religious people. But most everybody is kind of in the middle, and God just leaves them alone. And most everybody kind of wants to be in the middle where God just leaves them alone. As long as I don't do anything to offend God and he doesn't do anything to offend me, then we're good. We just live in the middle. Most modern people would like that to be the situation. 
Just as long as God stays in his space, I stay in mine, we're all good. But what Paul is reminding this church is he calls them to mature love is a reminder that we all need to hear that there's not three camps in this thing. There's only two. You are either in God's love, in a covenant relationship with him, or you are under his wrath. And the only hope that you have is to face his judgment. There's only two camps here. And so Paul says, look, if you don't love the Lord your God, if you don't love Jesus, then you're in the camp of the cursed. But not so with you. He says, come, Lord Jesus, come. You see, the kind of love that Paul is pointing them to, this faithful love, is not demonstrated in intensity of emotion, but rather in endurance of dedication. The picture that he's painting here is not the, the brand new couple that just posted on their Instagram or their Facebook uh, their, their, their engagement pictures and they're all giddy and excited and in love. That's not the picture that he's pointing here to about faithful love. It's not the intensity of emotion, but rather it's the picture of the couple who have been married for 50 years and through all the ups and downs of life and their relationship, they've been faithful to the promises they made at the beginning. That's what faithful love looks like. It's not the intensity of the emotion. It's the endurance of the dedication. And mature Christian love is a faithful love. And it's a faithful love built on the prior faithful love of Jesus. This, this past week, uh, my son, my five-year-old son, was playing with uh, my niece, who is also five. They were just outside playing in the dirt on the swing set and uh, just enjoying being together. And I was uh, enjoying being outside and not having to be responsible for anything other than those two children. There's 10 of them when all of my brothers get together. I only had two, so I was way up. I mean, this was a good deal for, uh, for me. So I'm listening to them play, and then uh, my niece uh, um, asked a pretty profound theological question, and it caught my attention. She said, who is Jesus' wife? And my five-year-old son contemplated that question for just a moment, and I thought, oh, this is, this is going to be good. I'll see what, uh, see what he says. So I saw him think, and then he did what every good male does when a female asks a question that you don't really know the answer to. He completely redirected. And he said, oh, yeah, Jesus had a wife. <laughs> and I thought, all right, I think I need to insert myself. I'm going to instruct them here. I, I'm going I'm to bail out my son before um, his cousin realizes that he completely avoided the, uh, the question. And I'm going to instruct them and teach them, you know what? Jesus didn't have a wife. Uh, that, was, uh, that was not part of his reality. And as I stepped forward about to, to correct them and say, hey, Jesus didn't have a wife, it dawned on me, Jesus does have a wife, right? I mean, you remember what the New Testament says. The, the Ephesians describes the church as the bride of Christ. And so I thought, oh, 
I'm going to teach these five-year-old kids some really important truths about Jesus and his wife. And so I said, you, you know what, Noah? That's my, my niece. I said, Jesus, Jesus does have a wife. His wife is the church. And both of them spun around, <laughs> looked up at me like I had lost my mind. And in that moment, I realized, wait, they're five years old. They're very concrete and, uh, and specific in their thinking. Likely the image that they have in their head was this church building decorated in white with Jesus standing outside. And so no wonder they looked at me like I was crazy. Well, before I could uh, instruct them further and, uh, and help them understand the deeper theological significance of Jesus' bride, uh, they bailed me out and, after looking at me like I was crazy, ran off and went back inside into somebody else's zone, so I didn't have to worry about them. But it's true, isn't it? Jesus does have a bride. It is his church. And in fact, the reason why the relationship between Jesus and the church is described as a relationship between a husband and wife is precisely because the kind of love that Jesus demonstrates for the church is the kind of love that every husband promises to demonstrate to his wife on their wedding day. Jesus keeps his wedding vow. Jesus has loved his church faithfully. And so when Paul says, hey, church, grow up, grow up, love Jesus the way that he has loved you. And you want to know the, the indication that that kind of mature love is growing up in you? Well, it's when you can pray, come, Lord, Come, because when we pray, come, Lord Jesus, come, what we are saying is, Jesus, we know you are faithful to your promise, and you promised that someday you would come again, and you would take your people home to the place that you prepared for them. And so a heart that loves Jesus with a faithful love says, come, Jesus, come. I know that you are faithful to your promise. And so I will build my hope on your faithful love. When we see the central concern of God for his people expressed through Paul, we see a call to a mature love that loves faithfully and holds on to the promise that he's given. But not just that. As we look at these next two verses, we see two other expressions, and I won't spend as much time on them. But look at the next verse, verse 23. Because while verse 22 points to a mature love that is faithful, verse 23 points to a mature love that is graceful. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with you. If you remember how this letter began, it began with a profuse expression of Paul reminding this church 
of the grace of God in Jesus. And so as he comes to the end and he prays for them, the grace of Jesus be with you, he's sandwiching everything that he said in a context of grace. He began with the grace of Jesus and he ends with the grace of Jesus. And if you remember what he says in between, it's a pretty good thing, right? Because throughout this letter, Paul has confronted people who were attempting to divide this church up based on who was going to lead and who wasn't going to lead. He's challenged them for accepting sin that nobody else accepts and treating it like it was no big deal. He has, he has taught them that their worship is a disordered mess and that they've got to figure out how to come together as a people. And he has, he has rebuked them for the rich people when they come together getting drunk while the poor people are going away hungry. Paul has said some harsh things to this church. And he said, you've got to change. You've got to fix this. You've got to grow. You've got to get better. But he's done it all in the context of grace. And this is, this is dramatically important for us because the temptation for each of us, when we come to hear God's word and we try to wrestle with, what am I supposed to do? The temptation for us is to look at all of the things that we're supposed to do to be different and think, well, I've got to change and fix myself so that I can get into grace. But that's not the way Paul does this. It's not the way God has set this up. No, everything that Paul said to this church that needed to change came in the context, the boundaries of grace that they'd already been given. And all of the changes that need to happen in our lives, they come not so that we can get God's grace, but because we are already resting in it. Think about it this way. Out on the African savanna, the elephants rule the plains. The giant, full-grown elephants uh, won't be bothered by the lions or the hyenas, but their babies will. And so what has happened is that the, the mother elephants, when they sense danger around, when they sense uh, predators around, they will give a trumpet call, and the herd of elephants will actually form a circle around the little baby elephants. Because no predator is going to want to face a wall of elephants and tusk and, and feet. You'll get stomped on. Uh, no predator is going to come through that. And so the babies are safe in the context of the circle of the herd. Well, it becomes a good picture for us because what God has done is he has said, look, my grace around you is like a herd of elephants. The cross of Jesus, his blood poured out for you, his life and death and resurrection, it marks out a space that is defined by grace. And if you'll sit there, you'll be safe. You'll be free to change and to grow and to transform. Not so that you can get in the circle, but because you finally are in the circle. But the temptation is that we baby elephants would look over at a tree and think, 
oh, those lions and hyenas are scary. I better get up in the tree. Now, have you ever seen an elephant try to climb a tree? <laughs> Me neither. But it would be a pretty ridiculous picture, right? The tree would collapse. The baby would end up on the ground and would still be exposed to the danger of the predators. But here's the deal. When we run outside of the context of grace, and we try to, to by making ourselves better, improving ourselves, get more of God's love, we've run outside the circle. When we ignore that God has set up the parameters of grace and we run off to some other savior, some, someone or something else to make us feel better about ourselves, to, uh, to assuage the guilt in us, when we try to run someplace else, it's like a baby elephant trying to climb a tree to get away from the lions. It can't work. The tree will collapse. The only safe place that we have is inside the circle. The circle of God's grace. And from within that circle, you are safe and free to say, God, I am messed up and I am broken and I need your help to transform me. Because you're safe in his grace. You can, as a pastor north of here is fond of saying, you, you, can, you can really believe that it's not okay. I'm sorry, let me back up. It's okay to not be okay, but it's not okay to stay that way. You can live that truth out. It's okay to not be okay, but it's not okay to stay that way when you're in the context of grace. Paul begins and ends with this truth. And for us, if we're going to mature in love, to, to live out what he has spotlighted here, what God is calling his church to, and we have to rest in his grace. But not just that. We've got to give grace to the other elephants that find their way into the circle. If the one entry requirement to be in the, the circle of God's grace in his family, the church, is to admit that you're broken and you have problems then it shouldn't be a surprise to us who are inside the circle when the people that we're rubbing shoulders with are broken and have problems. And sometimes it's hard to be in the circle with other broken people. There's hooves and tusks and things get pokey and it's not always comfortable. But the truth is, we got hooves and tusks ourselves. And so the only way for this mature love to work in a church is for us to rest in God's grace and then to allow space for others to rest there too. Giving grace to those, especially those, who are hardest to share the circle with. Because God has given it freely to us. We must give that grace freely to others. And that's what mature love does. And lastly, Paul says that this mature love, not only is it faithful, not only is it graceful, it is universal. My love be with all of you in Christ Jesus. It's his final words. 
And if you're a person who marks in your Bible, you ought to circle the word all. This might be the most profound thing that Paul says in his entire letter to this church. All of them, the weak and the strong, the ones who claim to follow Apollos and the ones who claim to follow Paul, the ones who are rich and the ones who are poor, the ones who are disrupting worship and the ones who are trying to order worship, the ones who are wise and the ones who are fools, the ones who are in and the ones who are out. All throughout this letter, if you will remember, everything that Paul has dealt with has been one group of people up against another group of people saying, this is the way, another group saying, no, this is the way. And it's not just that this church was divided down the half. This was, church was fractured into all different kinds of segments. And so Paul is, is, is like, a, like a pastor saying, look, I, I hear this group, and 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 I'm giving instruction to all of them. But look, what you need to know at the end of the day is that I love all of you. It's the heart that Paul expresses at the end. It's a pastor's heart. And I'll just tell you, as your pastor, I wish that I could do this perfectly for you, but, but I can't. But I'm going to try as best I know how to love all of you. Rich and poor, grew up in church, never been in church. Went to Baylor. I think I can even love those who went to TCU. I'm, I'm good. I can love all. But I know that, that I'm just going to be an imperfect picture of that for you. And that all of us, we don't need to look to me for this. We look to our perfect pastor, Jesus Christ himself. Because he is the one who said this. He said, I'm going to love all of you. My arms are big enough to show love to everyone who's going to come and stay in the circle of grace. And so, will you be willing to love like Jesus more and more, saying, I love, I love you all. Even when it's uncomfortable and even when it pokes me and I don't like it, it I, I'm going to love as best I know how. This is the spotlight that Paul puts on this church and says, look, church, the one driving concern is that you love each other faithfully and gracefully and universally. And it's the same spotlight that God puts on our church in every church like ours who wants to live lives shaped by Jesus. You see, the, the great danger for our church and for churches across our nation, the greatest danger is not the hostility of a culture that increasingly rejects biblical truth. That's not the great danger that we face. The Christianity was born in that context. That is not a great danger. That's normal. The great danger that our church and every church across our country faces is not the hostility of culture, but the apathy of Christians. 
Christians who instead of saying, I'm going to love as best I know how. I'm going to keep working at it. I'm going to get involved. I'm going to correct where there needs to be correction. I'm going to rebuke where there needs to be rebuke. I'm going to be patient. I'm going to be kind. I'm going to stay faithfully committed to God's people and to his word. Christians who continue to engage and to hang on and to be faithful to their churches and to one another and to Jesus, that kind of church, even even with profound division and profound disagreement and profound conflict, it can survive if the Christians will stay engaged and loving. But no church can survive apathy. No church can survive the attitude that says, I just don't care. It's just not worth it. Jesus did not love us that way. He loved us with a fierce and a dedicated love. So if we're going to be mature, grown-ups in the Christian faith, we have to love one another with that same kind of fierce, dedicated love that he has shown us. Will you love that way, church? Will you build your life together on the love that Jesus has given to you? Let's pray. Father, this is not our idea of love. It's not our idea of how life should go or should be lived. And, and yet we recognize that, that our ideas are not good enough. They're not working. And so I just pray today, would you give us humility of heart to recognize how immature, how childish we really are. And would you, as we recognize the safety you've given us in your grace, would you stir our hearts to long for more? Would you not let us be satisfied with a childish Christian life? but would you make us long for a mature, Jesus-like love? Your word says that if we love one another, all people will know that we are your disciples. So Father, would you birth love for one another like that in us? Would you fan it into flame where it already exists? Would you bring light to it in places so that we would have pictures and examples of that kind of love, heroes of love, so that we might follow that example? Mark us out as your people of love so that this world can know the kind of faithful, 
graceful and universal love that you have shown to us through Jesus. We pray this in his name. Amen.